This is Matt with a quick announcement before we get into today's show. I just wanted to address that in every episode, you can pretty much count that the first 15 minutes are usually going to be sort of a mentorship, faculty development, picks of the week, kind of us easing into the clinical topic, putting our guest at ease. So if you want to skip that, you can generally skip ahead 15 minutes. You can look at the show notes where we will have timestamps that say right when the clinical case starts. That way you don't have to guess. And finally, I'd like to say that on this episode, it is there are a lot of visuals that go along with this one. You can, Joel Toff made a wonderful PowerPoint that is available on our website. And a lot of the slides will be in the handout that we sent out to you in email this week. So make sure you check that out to follow along. The topic is acid base. And without further ado, here is the show. Is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only. And the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. For more of the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity aside from possibly cash back more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much we are responsible if you're We should always do your own homework and let's know the world. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Well, hi, Matt. How are you doing? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to squeak out a voice here for this episode, but I'm excited because Shreya's here. Man, so hey, am I. Hey. <laughs> for the show and everything else in between. And, uh-huh. and of course, Paul. Hi, everybody. <laughs> Paul, I noticed that your, uh, your hashtags have been tr- trending all over Twitter, much to your chagrin, <laughs> I imagine. <laughs> I don't care for any of that. <laughs> uh, please, uh, from now on, even if they have nothing to do with him, please put hashtag free Paul in all your tweets because uh, I find it funny and Paul finds it annoying. <laughs> sure. I'm sure we'll set the Twitterverse on fire. Paul's yeah. Twitter goes crazy Friday nights. He makes the best jokes. Just a, another plug. Paul, did you want to tell them what the show's about since I don't have a voice? Sure, I would love to. This is an internal medicine podcast, and we use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. <laughs> That's right. That's right. As I'm coughing <laughs> through. His face. As I'm coughing through. Yeah, so Shreya, what do we do on this episode? Because I really don't have a voice. All right. We're going to talk to Dr. Joel Toff about acid base, probably one of the most confusing, anxiety-provoking topics causing people to be probably in chronic respiratory alkalosis. <laughs> so we're going to learn a lot. With Dr. Toff today. That's right. Okay. So we go through, basically, there's about five steps to uh, determining the acid-base disorder and figuring out any uh, second acid-base disorders that are present. And if you're confused about this topic, which I think a lot of people are, but are afraid to admit, then this is going to be a really useful episode. If you don't know who Dr. Toff is, uh, then you're you're in luck. Uh you're in luck. That doesn't make sense. If you don't know who Dr. Toff is, <laughs> then I'm excited for you to hear him talk for the first time. 
Uh, he's been on several episodes with us, which you can go back and listen to after this one. But Dr. Toff, he's known in nephrology circles for his blog, Precious Bodily Fluids, The Musings of a Salt Whisperer. He's a board certified. Oh, and of course, on Twitter, at Kidney Boy is where he spends lots of time and uh, answering questions from whoever asks them on Twitter. Uh, he's a board-certified nephrologist and partner at St. Clair Nephrology. He holds academic appointments as assistant clinical professor at the Oakland University William Beaumont School of Medicine and is academic faculty for the St. John Hospital and Medical Center Nephrology Fellowship. Uh, so Dr. Toff is a celebrated educator and this year won a major teaching award at the American Society for Nephrology's Kidney Week which we were all very proud of and happy for him, feel that was very well-deserved. So without further ado, here is our thorough discussion of acid base with Dr. Joel Toff. Back with us tonight is a, a big crew recording. And of course, right. you're everyone's favorite, Dr. Joel Toff. Hi, Joel. Thanks for coming back on. Oh, I'm super excited to be here. This is going to be a great one. Yes, this topic this topic is much needed, I think, for many people who are willing to admit it and many people many more people who are not willing to admit that they need this topic. I'm I'm willing to admit that Matt needs this. <laughs> yeah, I, I am too. You know what? I wanna I wanna start off. Shreya, why don't you why don't you lead us into the interview? We're gonna spend some time uh, asking Joel some personal questions up front here. All right. So, Joel, it's like our fourth, fifth date with you. Uh, we kind of know the basics of, of you and your wonderfulness. So I thought we'd go a little bit deeper. And so I've been a little reflective. We're talking about acid base today. Acid base has a lot to do with compensation um, for, the, for a primary insult. So in terms of compensation, I was thinking about your life and how do you compensate or cope whenever you're faced with an insult or a conflict usually? Well, I, I think like a lot of people, I uh, I retreat to things that I'm very comfortable doing. So anytime I'm given a challenge, things to do that are difficult or challenging, I retreat. Let me give a lecture on something else, right? So it's a great it's a great way to be uh, both productive and to delay things that are inevitable. <laughs> and so I don't think it's a good strategy. It's just it's it's what I find myself doing repeatedly. So things that I'm good at, I like to do. And uh, if that means I have to ignore things that I am trying to ignore, so be it. I actually heard a, a recent like TED talk where they were – it was by this guy Adam Grant from – I think he's at Warden. He's somewhere at Penn. But he, he basically said that people who procrastinate, there's actually something to it. And he like wrote a whole book about it, how it's actually like beneficial to like start a task and then finish it midway because your mind is still thinking of it until that task is completed. So supposedly – It took it him 74 years to write that book. <laughs> <laughs> supposedly, supposedly it boosts your creativity to procrastinate. So I found that comforting. That's, I'll think about that later. Yeah, we, we can put the link in the show notes. Uh, all right, sorry, Shrey, I cut you off. No, no, all good. So on that role in terms of of kind of your success and, and being um, this, you know, mid-career faculty who's, you know, so big in the nephrology world, what would you say is, is your key um, looking back on these years in terms of your success? Sorry, I like stumbled there. Success. <laughs> no, no. So, so, so I guess I, I'd like to point out some important things. So, so one, like any success that I've had is a, is kind of an orthogonal success. Like there's a there's a set uh, route 
that you're supposed to f- go through to reach success in nephrology or any kind of academic field is you need to go to an academic institution. You need to uh, work your way up the academic ladder by publishing. You need to get grants. Like all that is hard work and the people that have accomplished it are amazing people. And I didn't do any of that. Okay. And, and so I, I you went rogue. I, no, I really did it. I found a you know quote third way, but I really want to. I, I feel uncomfortable when you say I'm a, someone who's super successful. Like I've reached a level of notoriety more than success. Like I think uh, people know of me because I do a lot of stuff that's very public. Um, but I, th- I uh, it's you know it's funny. They, what what is, what is uh, Isaac Newton said? He if, if I could see far, it's because I stood on the shoulder of giants. Like I've stood on the shoulder of giants, but I didn't look forward. I looked backwards, right? I just looked at what has already been done and then talked about what's already been done and what's already been researched. And that's that's not nearly as accomplished as someone who's actually uh, defining and determining new information. Mm-hmm. Right? And I think those are the people that we really need to uh, champion in medicine, are the people that are pushing back the barriers of knowledge. And I'm just kind of going through what they've already discovered and trying to make it a little bit more clear and to teach it to people, which is, I think, is a noble task, but I think is not uh, the the highest degree of accomplishment. I think they're both very important roles. One cannot survive without the other. Right. As a, bunch sure. of medic, as a bunch of medical educators, let's talk about how important medical education is. <laughs> <laughs> as as yeah, as a bunch of us who are doing the same exact thing you just described, uh, yeah, we we we'd like to think there's some merit. Well, you know what no, they say about those who don't do. <laughs> we teach. That's exact. That, oh, that's exactly right. And so, um, uh, and then the and then the other thing that has allowed me to be very successful is um, is that is is just like accidental timing. Like I came, I came. My generation was like the gap generation, like computers became more p- powerful enough and connected enough to be effective, but they weren't, we were too late to like learn them early on. And so there was just a few of us that had the skills uh, to use, to do a blog and to do sophisticated presentations and uh, do your own desktop publishing. Like all those were skills that were available and people could learn them, but there weren't a lot of doctors doing them. Right. And so I took advantage of that, but it was, you know, it w- and, and it really was a huge way for me to get ahead. Right. But it was an accident of timing more than skill. I think Shreya was trying to ask if you play like, if you're like yelling at like 10 year olds on a headset playing like Call of Duty or something like that. No, I'm, I'm, I'm horrible at video games. Um, so, no. So I'm kind of running out of questions to ask. So I've got a, I've got one I want to ask specifically you. If you could be any electrolyte, anion, cation, whatever, what would it be and why? <laughs> I've got one. Oh, please answer. I got to think about this. Okay. So if I could choose anything, it would be nitric oxide because it's both free and radical. <laughs> what? <laughs> I think if you Google a pun and then ask Joel the question, it's a little unfair. I didn't do that. I didn't Google this one. Okay. I was I was thinking about possible answers. Right. Well, you know, the, do you oh. want to hear a sodium? Do you want to hear a sodium joke? Sure, why not? No, no. The correct answer is nah. <laughs> <laughs> and then I say, do you okay. want to hear a potassium joke? Okay. <laughs> 
There you go. You're Yay. a natural. I know. <laughs> Maybe this we can let people medicine. answer on Twitter what, what electrolyte they think Joel is most like. And then, you know, we'll let the so fans I would, answer. I, 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 w- I would want to be sodium because it's kind of mysterious. It's like super <laughs> common, but nobody really gets it. And it's always. <laughs> and so, but, but, I, but I think I'm actually just uh, uh, magnesium, which is, uh, which is mostly, mostly irrelevant, but can still be measured. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, I am impressed. Uh, hold on, let me check that. <laughs> Paul? That's the correct answer, actually. No, I think magnesium, too, just because residents pay an inordinate <laughs> amount of attention to it. And that's uh, that's what I'm going for, pregnant ladies. It's, it's, beyond, it's beyond, like, the, if you get to, if you, I, when I was a, a fellow, I was given the assignment to write a chapter on magnesium. And I had no idea what kind of quagmire this was going to be. There is so much mysticism surrounding magnesium. Lots of people think magnesium can cure anything and everything. There's an entire entire journal about magnesium. Like, and so once there's an entire journal about magnesium, your PubMed search is wasted, right? Because whatever you look, there's going to be something on it. And so- you can just get you can get lost looking through uh, magnesium stuff, and there and there's some there was some really interesting research, but just so little of it has panned out. Like there's a lot of like suggestive things, like oh, magnesium should be great for diabetes. It seems to improve insulin uh, sensitivity, but you just don't see the final piece being put together where it becomes super important. Though all your diabetics are magnesium deficient, and oh, and then um, there's this huge field about magnesium where uh, they have functional magnesium deficiency. Like, don't be fooled by that normal magnesium level. Oh. They're still magnesium deficient, right? And so uh, with all kinds of um, advanced testing where you would give magnesium loads and measure 24-hour urine magnesiums after that to look at what percentage of magnesium was excreted. And if it, it doesn't reach 100%, that means they're absorbing magnesium because they're magnesium avid. So there's a pseudo-hypomagnesemia. <laughs> it's the worst, right? You know, and and as a fellow, like, it took me way too long to get what kind of quagmire I was in. I was like, oh, my God, this stuff is so fascinating. <laughs> Many lost hours. Paul, I was nah. – rather than give you a chance to answer a question – or ask a question, I, I think we should just go on to picks of the week. Because generally, this is your time to shine. So, Paul, did you have a? <laughs> do you want to start us off with a pick of the week? Usually, just by making fun of yours. Yeah, I, <laughs> I will. Um, so, I was watching the uh, the new movie Mute that is now streaming on Netflix, which is not my recommendation because it is a deeply flawed movie. But the director who directed Mute also came out with a great movie called Moon. So, the director's name is Duncan Jones. He came out with the movie Moon. I believe it was two thousand nine. It is a science fiction movie. Um, starring uh, occurring weirdly enough on the moon starring sam rockwell basically he's the only guy in the movie uh the voice of kevin spacey if that matters to you and i, I don't want to give too much away but it's sort of an um a study of identity it's got this amazing score by clint mansell uh the performance by sam rockwell is astonishing the plot's great it'll it'll blow your mind if you're a science fiction fan and probably even if you're not so the movie is moon by uh, duncan jones do you memorize all of that before you come on or you just do, no, you actually just free silence Stuart. this is all <laughs> you're really good with names i'm very impressed by it too Stuart. i i yeah. often wonder the same thing yeah, so it's just like paul should go on trivia off. i'm just Jeopardy. reading off the wikipedia page right now <laughs> oh, okay cool shreya did you have a pick of the week i did okay i want to plug 
something on Twitter. Um, it's Women in Medicine Chat. Uh, it happens every Sunday at nine o'clock, and we discuss all sorts of topics from like leadership and women, maternity leave, how as females we can better advocate for each other. Honestly, for me, it's just become a really amazing virtual community and just has given me a great sense of belonging outside of my own institution. And it's it's just great to hear other women who have similar struggles or women who've overcome it and are now kind of inspirational mentors for me. So I wanted to plug that out there for um, our listeners. Both men and women can join along the conversation. Um, and yeah, 9 p.m. Sundays, guys. Okay. Joel, did you have a pick of the week? So uh, right now we are in the middle of our giant uh, social media campaign called uh, Neff Madness, and this is um, uh, this is we're in year six of Neff Madness. So the idea for this is to take um, uh, you have March Madness, the basketball tournament, and we substitute all of the basketball teams with nephrology concepts. We have a field of thirty-two nephrology concepts distributed over eight different uh, academic regions. And if you go to um, nefmadness.com, you will see our brackets and you will be able to then uh, submit your uh, guesses for which ones will win. And uh, if you want to dig deeper, I recommend going to AJKD blog. This is the blog, the official scientific blog for the official um, journal of the National Kidney Foundation. And uh, we have what we have, we call them scouting reports. And we've gotten uh, experts in the field that have gone over the four teams in each one of those regions. And we've written up uh, evidence-based um, descriptions of all of them so you can get background on them. Because we're not, we're not talking, this is not like nephrology 101. We are working at a very high level. But you can catch up on all of this. My favorite bracket is animal, animal house is what we call it. And it is a, a region for the phenomenal uh, electrolyte somersaults that some animals can do. So we have how camels can store water and how toads can store water, which are completely different, right? Like the toad bladder, an amazing organ, right? <laughs> and so, uh, and and how about, you know, did you ever think about how crazy it is that salmon can go from saltwater, freshwater? Like that's like a total osmotic somersault, right? It's amazing. And so we go through all the physiology of this and you get to pick which one of these animals really is the best, which of course is going to be the shark, right? Cause sharks rock, but <laughs> I, I don't know. Camels are great too. So you gotta, you gotta, you gotta pick this and you're going to go through all 32 of them. Uh, if you, if you read all of the stuff on AJKD blog, all the scouting reports, we'll even give you eight hours of CME credit. Like this is, this stuff is awesome. Right. And then you submit your brackets with what you want, you think when we have a, a blue ribbon panel of nine nephrology leaders that vote, they determine the actual winners, how well your votes, uh, match up to their votes. will you'll get points and, uh, the, the person with the most points wins and we have prizes, textbooks. It should be great. When do I have to submit by? March 30th. Right. Okay, I can do that. When you submit, there's an opportunity to um, uh, associate yourself with a group. And so I think you guys should have a curbsider group. And you should get all your listeners to submit under curbsider. If they don't want to already submit under their residency program or their fellowship or what have right. you, that would be awesome. You guys could – like I think the biggest group last year was 30. Okay. <laughs> you guys could rock that. I think Did we they could win? probably beat that. Yeah, uh, so uh, thirty people was actually my institution last year, and everybody got a backpack, a little like a uh, little Neff Madness backpack. It was pretty cool. Sweet. 
I love seeing the residents walking around the house hospital still with the little Neff Madness swag. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, but we have people. We put people participate from all over the world. It's uh, like I said, it's in our sixth year. It's been uh, it's been a lot of fun. All right. Well. Stuart, uh, I'm not going to give a pick of the week. I think we should move on unless you really have one because this is a big topic and I want to allow allow it enough time. This is my pick of the week. Let's get into it. Let's do it. All right. Yeah. Awesome. I mean, Joel, this is is such a big topic. Did you want to give us a case to build this off of or where where do you like to start when when you're teaching acid base? Okay. So let's let's frame acid base. And so acid base is kind of like there's a few, there's only a few subjects in medicine that are like this. And it's, it's, a, it's, first of all, it's this huge, it's a skill. It's not so much like a knowledge thing. Like you just need to, you need to know how to run this algorithm. And then another skill, it's also, I think, very similar to the skill of um, the physical exam, right? The physical exam is something that's taught and that the important the part about learning the physical exam is not to ask so many questions about how useful it actually is to diagnose things. Like, cause the more you look at the sensitivity and specificity for much of what you do during the physical exam, the less excited you are about doing the physical exam. Right. But it's, <laughs> but it's still like, it's like a ritual that we all do. And acid base is somewhat, and I am so sad to say it is a lot like that is that we've created this internally consistent, beautiful logic, the way an acid base works inside of that. And then when you start to judge it by kind of the hard, you know, rules that we do, like the, the anion gap, which has this beautiful way of breaking down the differential diagnosis, has a sensitivity for lactic acidosis of like 50%. Like that's not good enough to do anything, right? And so... And so it kind of breaks down and some, but whatever, you're still going to be tested on it. It's still going to be on boards. You still need to know it. Competent physicians can work their way through an acid base question and, uh, and understand an ABG. And so I, so I'm, I'm tortured, right? Like I want it to be better than it actually is, but you, and I hate to say that you need to know it because you need to know it. But I think in the end, it's just a skill you need to know. And so, and it's, and it's, difficult because it's so much different than the type of information that you're used to learning. I don't think it's difficult, like on its face, like everybody in medicine is intelligent enough to do it, but it is, um, it is, uh, materially different than everything you learn in rheumatology or hepatology. It just feels different. So let's walk through that. And I think we can start with what's different and what makes it very different from everything else in nephrology is we're used to balancing atoms at millimolar quantities, but we're now we're talking about protons that are at nanomolar quantities. Like a normal pH of 7.4 is a, a hydrogen ion concentration of 0.00004 millimoles per liter. Like it's ridiculously small. <laughs> and, and, and the solution for this in all of its insanity is to measure it on a negative logarithmic scale, right? Because we're so used to working in a negative logarithmic scale. That should be. <laughs> and so the first absurdity is like the lower the pH, the higher the hydrogen ion concentration. And right, that you could wrap your mind around that, but then we're going to make it a curvilinear relationship so that as we go down the pH scale, we get larger and larger changes in hydrogen ion concentration compared to going up the up the pH scale. To make it clear, 
a change of 0.3 on the pH scale will is a factor of two in hydrogen ion concentration. If we're going for 7.4, which is 40 nanomoles per liter, to 7.1, you double to 80. Go to 6.8, you double again to 160. You go from 7.4 to 7.7, you cut it in half. You go from 40 to 20. So the delta from 7.4 to 7.7 is only 20, but 7.4 to 7.1 is 40. So, I mean, I remember as a sub-I getting pimped by the dean of students. He was, he was, and he was like, what's better tolerated, acidosis or alkalosis? Answer is alkalosis, much better tolerated than acidosis. And he started going into this long-winded explanation about compensation, et cetera. It was all BS. Right? <laughs> the reason alkalosis is better tolerated is because of this curvilinear relationship. You're talking about a smaller change in hydrogen ion concentration. So that's, so you just got to, again, you know, the idea that putting this on a negative logarithmic scale helps anything is absurd, but that's what we've got. Okay. The next thing that that tortured me for a long time was just I misunderstood the value of the ABG. I thought it was a therapeutic tool that I would get an ABG and I would see uh, the pH was low and the PCO2 was high. And I said, oh, we need to intubate this patient. Or I'd see the pH was low and the bicarb was low and I need to give bicarb to this patient. And um, I am sure that I harmed a number of patients <laughs> using this. <laughs> And, you know, it is the, the ABG is not, is not useful for guiding therapy, right? And I think the, the best example of this is you get a patient with a pH of 6.8 and your mind explodes. You're like, oh my God, this patient is profoundly ill. And then if someone tells you they just had a grand mal seizure, you're like, oh, okay, well, just check the ABG again in five minutes and it's going to be fine, Right. But if that pH of 6.8 is due to methanol toxicity, it's like game over. That patient is going to die, right? You've missed your opportunity to treat them. Mm -hmm. And the difference is not the pH between those two differences. The difference is the disease, right? So the ABG tells you what the pH is, but it doesn't tell you anything about the patient. You need to use the ABG, the blood gas, as a diagnostic tool, as a way to get to a diagnosis, and then you can figure out what you need to do. If it's a seizure, you just need to wait. They're going to get better on their own. If it's methanol and it's not too late, you can give them fomepazole and dialysis and take care of them. And so, uh, you know, you know, it's the disease. That's what you need to focus on. It's not necessarily the pH. I like that. Yeah. And so I think if you're an anesthesiologist, the ABG may be a therapeutic tool Right. If you have to play, if you're if your job is I'm going to be the brainstem for this patient, I think it's going to be very different than as an internist. Mm -hmm. Okay, as an internist, we're really just using these tools to um, uh, to come up with a diagnosis. And what we're really looking for, we're we're going to use every time you get an ABG, you need an ABG and a basic metabolic profile, and we're going to go through five steps to fully. Um, dissect the ABG and get as much information out of it as possible. And I've got this image that I think is going to be uh, on the Curbsider website. And um, it's this uh, 
it's this five layer cake essentially i always think of it as kind of like an archaeologic dig and you start at the top and you start to dig down deeper and deeper and you can get as much possible as much information as possible from a um uh, this this chemistry and i think it's pretty incredible the amount of information that can be abstracted from an abg and a basic metabolic profile is one of the things that's so intoxicating about the subject joel i wanted to say did you want to tie this you had given us a case this was this was this guy that you were seeing, which is ba- changed from a real world case, but it's it was a paraplegic gentleman. He had a chronic indwelling Foley. He was admitted with urosepsis from Klebsiella, and the basic metabolic panel showed that his bicarb is sixteen, his anion gap is eight, and the residents uh, are calling this a metabolic acidosis, and they started him on sodium bicarbonate. Um, but day after day, like the bicarb is just being stubborn; it's not correcting. Um, so finally, they give him a bicarb drip, and they call a nephrology consult. And am I missing anything from the case? I guess you, you asked for an ABG, and right. But before we get to the ABG, so the the key there is they looked at um, the bicarb level of sixteen, and they saw that it was decreased, and that is one component of uh, your Henderson Hasselbach variables, but it's not all of them. And from that bicarb, you can't. You can't actually diagnose whether the patient has metabolic acidosis or not. Right. And the other important key there was that they did the patient did not have an anion gap, um, and that uh, and so they started a bicarb drip, treating presumed metabolic acidosis without diagnosing metabolic acidosis. And when we did the ABG, the patient had a respiratory alkalosis, and so the decreased total CO2 or bicarb on the basic metabolic profile was secondary to compensation and not the primary disorder. And so, uh, you know, and we tend to not treat alkalosis with bicarb, right? That's not what you want to do. I'm not sure if we should treat acidosis with bicarb. We certainly shouldn't treat alkalosis with bicarb. And so, um, so where should they have started here? Like what steps should they have walked through as you were about to get into before I interrupted you? Yeah, that's perfect. Right. Okay. So um, essentially the the primary buffer in the body is bicarbonate. So you have this central equation, which is uh, water plus CO2 is in equilibrium with carbonic acid, which is in equilibrium with hydrogen and bicarbonate. Because we, the body has carbonic anhydrase, the fastest enzyme in the world, or excuse me, in the body, 6 million reactions a second, I think that's what it is, um, you, we drop out carbonic anhydrase and we just put water and CO2 in equilibrium with hydrogen and bicarbonate. And you can rearrange that using the law of mass action and simple algebra, and you end up with um, what we call the Henderson-Hasselbach formula, which is the pH is equal to uh, pKa plus the log of bicarbonate over CO2. The important part of that, which I call the mantra, is that pH is proportional to bicarbonate and inversely proportional to CO2. And so if the bicarbonate goes up, the pH goes up. If the CO2 goes up, the pH goes down. And, um, and that from there, uh, we can, de- we can uh, define the four primary uh, acid-based disorders. Um, there is, you know, uh, metabolic alkalosis, which is an increase in bicarbonate, increase in pH, metabolic acidosis, a decrease in bicarbonate, decrease in pH, 
respiratory acidosis, an increase in PCO2, and a decrease in pH, and respiratory alkalosis, a decrease in PCO2, and an increase in pH. And then compensation is the body trying to reestablish the ratio of bicarbonate and CO2 so there's a minimal change to the pH. So if your CO2 falls, your bicarbonate will fall as compensation to minimize the change in that ratio. And if your bicarb goes up, your PCO2 will rise to, again, try to minimize changes in that ratio. And so the key fact that you, you know, the compensation always going to be in the same direction as the primary disorder. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that um, the last part of that, since there's three variables, would be the pH. And then in metabolic disorders, primary disorder and compensation will be in the same direction and the pH will be in the same direction. While in respiratory disorders, primary compensation in the same direction, pH in the opposite direction. I just I just wanted to plug one thing from one of your slides that I loved that metabolic acidosis is like a boy band. Everything goes in the same direction and it's all down. Yeah, but you're missing uh, like control. one direction. Not, yeah, it's not the same oh, direction. It's one direction. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you can say the joke. I totally messed it up. No, that's that's Shreya. is our expert on on uh, messing up jokes. So I think it's. I think it might be more memorable that way, Shreya. That's a good learning tool. <laughs> it's all going down. I was just. I. You know, it's so sad. I was just waiting for him to finish. All I could think about was that joke, and then I messed it up. Yeah, no, you could say they're on sync. That is perfect. I, yeah, and Joel, I think I agree with I agree with what she's saying though. Like, it's just it's so easy now. You just look at the ABG, and if the pH, the CO two, and the bicarb are all going in the same, all going in one direction, Trey, you got me saying the wrong thing. If they're all going in one direction, it's metabolic. And if 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 the pH is going in a different direction, then it's respiratory, and that really is easy to to remember. So. And that's it, right? And that, and and you know, when I teach this, uh, you know, I tell the medical students, you know, there's nothing easier than determining the primary disorder, right? We'll go through it a room. I, I have a, you know, I have a pile of like 20 questions, and we'll go through the room, and there'll be 20 out of 20. Like once they learn the secret, nobody gets it wrong, right? And they start to roll their eyes, like they can't believe I'm asking them these questions because it's so trivial. But like getting the primary disorder like puts you ahead of a lot of a lot of interns, right? You're yeah. you're you you've got that part. It's easy, but a lot of people miss that, right? So just, and I just, and I, literally, I take a arrow and I just draw little arrows. It up or down, it up or down, it up or down, and you just, and once they're all going in the same direction, oh, it's a metabolic, and then you just look at the pH up or down, and then acidosis or alkalosis. That's exactly right. So, um, yeah, why is metabolic acidosis like a boy band? Everything moves in one direction. Now, Excellent. are you claiming credit for that joke, or is uh, did someone else come up with that? I'm taking full credit for that. Okay. okay. And it's all down from there. I, I, will, I, will, I will say that um, memory is not a very reliable source of evidence, right? <laughs> <laughs> like I literally I, – I told a story from my residency for years about how while I was a resident, Dan Quayle had a pulmonary embolism and was in the hospital and that uh, there was secret service there and you had to have your badge and all this. And I, I'd literally been telling the story for years and then I looked it up. And I realized that Dan Quayle being in the hospital was a year before I showed up for my residency. Like I have all these memories that just never occurred. So <laughs> I'm pretty sure I made up the, the boy band joke. Um, 
and and my evidence is that I've got a I've got a, a 15 year old daughter, and so she was like 12 at that time. So you know who knows, but uh, I do believe that's my joke. All right, we'll allow it. So what's the next step? Now we know we know what the primary disorder is, and we know it's acidosis or alkalosis. Stuart, did you want to ask Perfect. your acidemia versus al- alkalemia uh, question? Uh, it's a dumb question. <laughs> Just uh, for nomenclature purposes, is it acidemia or alkalemia or acidosis or alkalosis and why? So those refer to different things. Okay, so acidemia actually means the pH is below 7.4. And acidosis is any process that tends to lower the pH, but the pH may still be above 7.4, but you can have an acidosis, right? So if you have, if you've been vomiting for days, okay, so you have this wicked metabolic alkalosis, and then you develop DKA, and that DK, so now you have a bunch of ketones floating in your in your bloodstream, that DKA is going to cause a metabolic acidosis, but it may not cause acidemia depending on how, if it's more severe or less severe than the metabolic alkalosis. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So okay. in terms of the earlier theoretical case where the patient had a pH of 6.8, it's not the acidemia that kills you, it's the acidosis that kills you. Do I have that correct? Yeah, that's a good, I hadn't thought about that way, but yeah. There you yeah, go. It's okay. a disease that's important. That's exactly right. So uh, when we were talking about compensation initially, we said that compensation always goes in the same direction, the one one direction, same direction. <laughs> in this okay, case, I derailed the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> Guys, I'm just, I'm just, if 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 I was my whole if my skin wasn't brown, I'd be bright red right now. <laughs> it's okay. So, you need some sleep eventually, Shreya. I'm why is there you. why is there a, a a mark out of just one guy's head in that slide? The an- the answer for that is I I'm I'm blanking on the name, but one of the members of One Direction left, and I think oh. it's it's Dane Jane or. J- one Direction. Who oh, Zane. Zane. Is that who was who left? Zane. Yeah, Zane. That's a, that's spelled Z A Y N. Um, yeah. So Zane left, and <laughs> big so deal. it no was comment. a big deal. I usually usually when that when that slide builds and the little anti comes across him, I then ask everybody to pour one out for Zane, <laughs> right? And the <laughs> and the medical students, half of them look at me with respect because I know one direction and the other half of me look at just horror that I know one direction. <laughs> Joel, I had no I'm idea just, your knowledge of one I'm direction. I'm just a poser. I'm just a poser. Like I, I'm, I, I look it up on Wikipedia right before I go into the cl- into the lecture. I'm the worst. Mm-hmm. Anything, anything to look cool to the kids. And then the worst is it's not cool at all, right? <laughs> oh. So, uh, okay. So let's back. Uh, we said that compensation is always in the same direction as the primary disorder, but it's actually even more advanced than that, that you can not only determine the direction of compensation, but you can determine the degree of compensation, the specific amount of compensation just from the severity of the primary disorder. Okay. And so when you have a metabolic acidosis and you've dropped your bicarb down to 12, you need to hyperventilate down to a PCO2 of 26. That's the proper amount of hyperventilation, the proper amount of compensation, the predicted amount of compensation for that degree of metabolic acidosis. Okay. So if you hyperventilate down to 30, yeah, you're doing great. You're breathing faster than you should, but you're not breathing what a healthy human breathes down to. You're just made, you're not hyperventilating enough. Inadequate ventilation is what's going on there. And we have a t- name for that in- inadequate ventilation. We call it respiratory acidosis. 
If, on the other hand, that person hyperventilates down to 20, right, I have, a, I have residents will say, oh, my gosh, this patient is, like, overcompensating for their metabolic acidosis as if, like, the patient has three lungs, right? They have some kind of <laughs> alien technology that allows them to really breathe very well. No, that's not what's happening. Like, they are hyperventilating beyond what they should be for that degree of metabolic acidosis. We have a name for that, too. We call that respiratory alkalosis. And so by knowing where the PCO2 should be for that metabolic acidosis, you know, you can then look at that ABG and see if there's a second primary disorder going on that's affecting compensation. Okay. And this is, this is, um, this second level is usually where, well, it's an important, it's a huge, important part of doing your analysis of your ABG. You determine the primary disorder, and then you look to see if compensation is appropriate. It is also the primary pain point uh, for ABGs because there are four primary disorders and you need to learn four different equations to understand them. They're not hard equations, but you just need to sit down and memorize them. You're a medical student, you're a resident, you're good at memorizing things. It's just different than the stuff you're used to memorizing because it's an equation. Um, There are lots of uh, programs that you can get for your smartphone that will interpret the ABG for you. The ones that I've used have all been accurate. I don't think there's a problem with it. It's pretty mechanical to do, Um, but you can't use them during boards. And honestly, uh, when you're taking care of patients, taking out the phone, unlocking the phone, finding the app, inputting all the data or going to the web and searching for it, it just, it, it takes forever. Like it's worth it if you do these enough just to memorize it. The last three months of CCU, medical ICU, med consult, how many rapids have I run where I need to think on on the spot what the ABG was telling me for this patient. Um, and, you know, I didn't have a app on me. So more, uh, more, more evidence for, not, not evidence, more, uh, more support for, you know, knowing this offhand and not just relying on the app. Yeah. Joel, is there a specific app that you did want to recommend? Like, or, does it? Is there any specific one? I'm a, I'm a big fan of uh, MedCal X. It is not a free app, but it is excellent. Yeah, my my. Your <laughs> clock is programmed. Q twelve minutes. <laughs> so the audience, the audience should know something. Uh, Joel, Joel has a grandfather clock at his house, which rings every fifteen minutes. We're just going to keep it in there. <laughs> it's kind of a metronome for the pacing of the show. <laughs> Okay. Um, okay. <laughs> okay. So MedCal X four. Yeah. Med, med four more, three more, two more, one more. There, that should be it. Why was this not a problem last time? His wife's away. Oh, no, no. <laughs> his wife guards wife the is- clock. <laughs> Here's the story. Here's the story. As part of my wife getting ready to leave, she wound the clock, right? Because like that's the kind of woman she is. She's like, oh, I'm gonna get everything ready, and the clock got wound. And <laughs> perfect timing. So, perfect timing, of course. So uh, yeah, MedCal X. Uh, these guys have been making medical calculators since 1997. They were on the Palm Pilot initially. They're a great group, um, and they have a, an excellent ABG analyzer. Um, uh, so, and there's some ABG specific ones that I've used that are fine also. Okay. So let's, so there's four equations, I, you know, and I'm going to go through them because I think, uh, I think I have a way of describing them that makes them a little bit easier to memorize. So the first one is the only one 
that has a name. It's Winter's formula. It's for metabolic acidosis. If you are going to memorize only one equation, this is the one to memorize. Uh, the metabolic acidosis is the one that comes up all the time. Uh, and on boards, I swear to God, half of all the ABGs are going to be metabolic acidosis. So this one's easy. You know the bicarb. You're trying to figure out the CO2. You take one and a half times the bicarb. You add eight to that, and then you put a plus or minus two on it. The deal about the plus or minus two is that all of these equations have a little bit of slop, plus or minus two on all of them for metabolic alkalosis, respiratory acidosis, and respiratory alkalosis. So for me, since they all have plus or minus two, I just don't really think about that as being part of the equation. It's just one and a half times the bicarb plus eight, boom, that'll get you the answer. There are other shortcuts that you'll be taught that resident will be thinking, all you got to do is take the uh, uh, bicarb plus 15 and... What they don't tell you is that those shortcuts don't work for all ABGs. They work for most ABGs. And so if you want to use the shortcut, you also have to remember the exception for where they fail. And then you need to still know Winter's formula. So when that except when you run into that <laughs> exception, you can do the calculation. It's just not worth it. The equation's simple. One and a half times the bicarb plus eight done. Metabolic alkalosis, again, we know the bicarb. We're trying to figure out the CO2. And so what we do is we take um you figure out how much the bicarb has gone up from 24. So if you've got a bicarb of 36, it's gone up by 12. I call that the delta. You have a delta of 12. You take two-thirds of the delta, which in this case is 8, and you add that to a normal PCO2 of 40, and you get 48. Okay? So two-thirds of the delta bicarb plus a normal PCO2 is what your PCO2 should be in metabolic alkalosis. Easy. Um, the respiratory disorders are a little bit more complex because, and it pains me to tell you this, the kidney is slow to respond compared <laughs> to the lungs uh, to these metabolic disorders or these respiratory disorders. So if you have a respiratory acidosis or respiratory alkalosis, you'll have the first 24 hours in which you do not have good compensation by the kidney. And then after that, you get excellent compensation by the kidney. And so you actually have to calculate both an acute change in the bicarb and a chronic change in the bicarb. And so uh, we do this for every 10 of the PCO2. So for every 10 that the PCO2 rises in respiratory acidosis, the bicarb goes up one acutely and three chronically. And I want you to think about what actually is happening with this ABG. In acute respiratory acidosis, the bicarb is just about normal and the pH is whacked. And then over time, that bicarb starts to go up higher and higher and higher, and that pH gets more and more normal, right? So you trade your abnormal pH for an abnormal bicarb. That's what's happening during this, this process where you're accommodating. In respiratory alkalosis, for every 10 that the PCO2 falls, the bicarb falls too acutely and four chronically, right? So you have one in three for respiratory acidosis, and two and four for respiratory alkalosis. And if, if you kind of think about what the kidney is actually doing, um, the fact that you have a larger change with respiratory alkalosis makes a little bit more sense. That with respiratory alkalosis to lower the bicarb, all the kidney needs to do is fail to reabsorb all the filtered bicarbonate in the proximal tubule. It just needs to do less work. It needs to put its feet up and not do so much work, and it'll just piss off that bicarb, and the bicarb will fall like a stone. For respiratory acidosis, not only does it have to reabsorb all the filtered bicarbonate in the proximal tubule, 
it has to then synthesize additional bicarb in the distal nephron to compensate for just the bicarb that's consumed with normal metabolism and then generate even more bicarbonate to raise the serum bicarbonate up. It's a lot of work for the kidney to do. And so that's kind of a teleologic explanation for why it's less than you get with respiratory alkalosis. That's great. And those are the four equations. Oh, yeah. And yeah. I, I was just going to say, I mean, we're going to have the PowerPoint on the website and the, the, the way that you visually put this together makes it really easy to remember, especially with the respiratory compensation. You have it in a two by two uh, table there, which, which makes it really easy. And essentially what you can do is you can put, um, you can make a two by two table and you can put respiratory acidosis and alkalosis in alphabetical order along the top and acute and chronic in alphabetical order down the sides. And then you just put one, two, three, four, and it resolves perfectly. As you, I used to do this before tests, just in the margins, I would just write this little table down so I could then interpret all the ABGs for the, mm. the tests. There are a, a nephrology recertif- re- recertification boards. There are lots of ABGs to interpret. Right. <laughs> I, <laughs> it's like here's 1000 ABGs I, go to work. <laughs> I thought I thought you were talking medical school. I didn't realize you were talking like recent times. <laughs> uh, uh, okay. So what you're going to do in so that's your second major step in interpreting the ABG is you've determined if the compensation is appropriate and then you can look for a second primary disorder. And I I just because I'm a nephrologist, I'm going to get pedantic for a moment. Um, oftentimes, people will say, we've looked for, we found a secondary disorder. And that's not what you're seeing here, right? Um, so we talked about the person who had um, a lot of vomiting and then developed uh, a DKA. That's not a great example for this. Let's talk about a, a person who has um, a, a, a PE and then develops uh, DKA. And so they're PE causes respiratory alkalosis, right? Any type of insult to the lung uh, will stimulate hyperventilation. That was that was the other thing that was wild to learn, right? Because you think about the mechanics of what happens during a PE, and you think that must cause respiratory acidosis, right? You've whacked off a bunch of the lung. You don't get good. You get uh, ventilation without perfusion there. That must cause respiratory acidosis, and it doesn't, right? That a PE and pneumonia and aspiration, and lung cancer, and chemical pneumonitis. Like, it doesn't matter what the primary insult to the lung is, asthma. It doesn't matter what the primary insult to the lung is. The, res- the pulmonary response is to hyperventilate. So you get respiratory alkalosis in all of those. Hypoxia, right? And anxiety. so Anxiety, right. Medical and so, students all the time. <laughs> Chronic. I think the, ner- the lung is just a nervous organ, Joel. I think that's it. Well, but and I think it's it's like the way the lung, you know, again, teleologically speaking, the way the lung was designed, like the lung's like, I may fail, but I'm not going to fail by not breathing fast enough. Like if something's going wrong, I'm just going to breathe as fast as I can. I'm going to leave it all in the field. <laughs> right, and it's just like the kidney's response to any type of injury is I'm going to retain sodium. I don't know what's going on, but I am not going to pee myself to death, right? That, right? It's just like these, there's these inherent fail modes, right? You know, you know. I, so yeah, so anything that does in lungs can cause respiratory alkalosis. I forget, how do we get to respiratory alkalosis? We were, oh, we were talking about the two primaries. Okay, so you have a PE that causes respiratory alkalosis, then the patient gets DKA and now has metabolic acidosis on top of that. That metabolic acidosis, that DKA, is not secondary to the PE in any way. It's a second 
primary disorder. And the only reason it comes up second is that in this case, the respiratory alkalosis was more powerful and raised the pH. So the patient has an elevated pH. So when you went through the primary disorder, you found an elevated pH and a decreased PCO2 and a decreased bicarb. And then since your lines are going in opposite directions, you have a respiratory disorder, it's a respiratory alkalosis. You look at how much the PCO2 fell and you looked at how much the bicarb fell and whoa, the bicarb fell a lot further than that. There's an additional metabolic acidosis. Not secondary, but a second primary. That's like, it's just pedantic. I don't think it's super important, but it's a, uh, I want to point that out. When we're looking at the compensate, the respiratory compensation, um, acute versus chronic, do you, you don't necessarily know at the time that you're diagnosing the patient. So how do you, how do you like to suss that out? Okay. So uh, again, uh, things that I was steered wrong at and misunderstood for many years until I figured this out. Uh I was taught that, um, that you look at, you you calculate the the acute and the chronic and whichever one better agreed with what you had, that that can determine whether you've acute acute or chronic was kind of like Occam's razor for (laughs) um, ABGs that if you could explain the bicarb better by making the patient have chronic respiratory acidosis versus acute respiratory acidosis, then they have chronic. If you had to then employ that they have an additional metabolic alkalosis, if they have acute, then don't don't do that. Just make it chronic and everything gets easier. And that's, that's just, you know, you know, in medicine, we don't use Occam's razor. We use Hickam's dictum, right? And Hickam's dictum, Occam's razor says, you know, if you have two explanations, that both satisfy the facts, the simpler one is probably true. But Hickam's Dickum says uh, patients can have as many damn diseases as they want, right? <laughs> right? You, can't, <laughs> you can't predict that from that. And so, you know, I, I tell medical students, if the patient's there because someone stuffed a pillow over their face, you know what the <laughs> respiratory acidosis, that's acute, okay? <laughs> right? And if, and if they're there because they've been smoking cigarettes for 60 years and they got emphysema and they're carrying their oxygen container behind them, they got the little concentrator, yeah, that patient has chronic respiratory acidosis. There's nothing in the ABG that guides you to the answer. You actually have to look at the patients and do a physical exam. And I know how upsetting that is to a lot of nephrologists that we can't use the numbers to determine whether it's acute or chronic, but that's just the way it is. You need to look at your patients. And in fact, you can make that determination before you even do the ABG. You're like, oh, this is going to be acute or this is going to be chronic. You only have to do one of the calculations, right? Because the the numbers don't help you with that. You have to do that, get that from the history and physical. Great. That's a great explanation. Thank you. So we're, we're kind of moving into the second primary disorder. So you were telling us kind of call it a second primary disorder, not a yeah. secondary pr- uh, primary disorder. So how do we, uh, how do we sort of go about that? Okay. So you've done, you've done both of them. We did the primary disorder, which was the, 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 the uh, looking at the directions of the, uh, bicarbonate PCO2 in, in, in relation to the pH. Then the second primary was looking at the compensation, seeing if it's appropriate, matching that up. And if the patient's PCO2 is in, in a case of metabolic acidosis, if their PCO2 is way lower than predicted, you have an additional respiratory alkalosis. If it's higher than predicted, you have a respiratory acidosis. And so that's, that's how you get your second disorder. Mm-hmm. And then after that, um, time to look at the anion gap. Okay. And, um, and so, you know, the anion gap, uh, uh, you know, when, when I was a resident, we had to calculate it ourselves, right? And, <laughs> yeah. and now it, and now it, now it shows up right on the, on the, on the chem seven comes right out there. And, um, it's, it's a bit, 
it's a bit abstract what it actually is measuring. And so, uh, and I, you probably, everybody's probably seen these things. They're called gamblegrams, and they set up uh, two columns, an anion column and a cation column. And the cation column is just sodium, and then the anion column is a chloride, bicarbonate, and other anions. And the key here is that the total number of anions must equal the total number of cations. And the joke is, otherwise, if you touch blood, you'd get a shock, right? And since you don't get a shock when you touch blood, cations equal anions. And in, uh, in metabolic acidosis, by definition, the bicarb compartment shrinks, right? We, bicarb goes down in metabolic acidosis. That's defining characteristic of metabolic acidosis. But the anions and cations still need to equal the same. I'm turning off that damn clock. Hold on. <laughs> Good, it's every 12 minutes. I think it is. I think it is. Clock clock is off. I'm going to put that on my checklist. I'm kind of sad. Kind of sad to see it go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, wedding wedding gift from the in laws. I'll, I'll I'll pass that on to them. That they that uh, <laughs> it was a big hit on our podcast. <laughs> We're back to the gamble grams. You have metabolic acidosis. The bicarb goes down, but the anions must equal the cations. And there's just two possibilities: either the chloride compartment gets larger or the other anion compartment gets larger. And that's, and that's what we're determining when we, do, when we measure the anion gap. If the anion gap is large, that means the other anion gap compartment has gotten larger. And if the, other, if the anion gap is normal size, less than 12, then the chloride compartment gets larger, right? And that's the whole root of, you'll hear people talk about a hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis. That's just another way of saying a normal anion gap metabolic acidosis. And so, you know, one way to think about this is that, you know, with metabolic acidosis, you know that the hydrogen ion has gotten high. You have an elevation in the hydrogen ion concentration, and it has to come with an anion. And that anion is either chloride or something else. And if it's something else, we call it an anion gap metabolic acidosis, and it's chloride, it's a non-anion gap metabolic acidosis. Um, and then, you know, calculating the anion gap is totally trivial. It's a you take uh, sodium and you subtract that from the sum of bicarb plus chloride. Normal value is 12. It'll vary a little bit from hospital to hospital. And then there's there's this interesting kind of subgenre of acid base which looks at um, calculating an individual anion gap, normal anion gap for individual patients. And the, the thought here is that... Um, a large component of those normal anion gap is albumin and phosphorus. And assuming that your individual patient, albumin and phosphorus is not is normal, may be wrong, especially in a sick patient. So which equation, which equation do you, are you talking about like correcting the anion gap? Is that, the, is this the same you thing wanna, or is that a wanna, little different? You want to correct the anion gap. You can add two and a half to what your calculated anion gap is for every one gram per deciliter that the albumin is decreased. Okay. Right? So if the patient has an anion gap of 14, which mm -hmm. is a small anion gap, but they have an albumin of two, it's like they have an anion gap of 19. Right. You had two and a half times two, add that to your 14. Now you got a pretty big anion gap. Mm -hmm. um, and you can add, uh, and you can adjust also for the phosphorus. This is deep into the not very well supported by um, uh, evidence. It doesn't help very much increasing the sensitivity or specificity for anion gap. Um, it is the kind of thing that people 
that really like to do uh, ABGs uh, like to engage in. Okay. And, um, and so, it, again, it's part of this internally consistent logic of how this stuff should work um, and then doesn't work so well when you actually measure it against, the, against uh, real patient data. Uh, that said, you'll probably get asked about this, especially in an ICU rotation. Have you have you guys run into this? People asking you about the low albumin and adjusting the anion gap, or is this me just fictionalizing? No, all, yes. all the time. All the time. And base excess and deficit and stuff like that. But. Yeah, I, I I was gonna ask, if you didn't if you hadn't asked, I was gonna ask because this is something that. I had never really been strongly encouraged to do it. I mean, I, I do, I, I, I've heard the albumin thing. So I do look at that, you know, just to see like if, if it's a normal anion gap and their albumin is low, I will take a look at it just to take an I guess, guess if there's something going on, but I don't know how clinically useful it is. We are all here for your wisdom. So tell us the way that you do it. <laughs> Fair enough. Oh my God, this, this, this will, this will be my undoing. I'm sure. <laughs> Yeah, so I do adjust anion gaps for albumin when I'm looking to see if there's an anion gap. Um, that's how I do it. it. Sounds like this is something you guys have all run into. You take the you know the way you would do it is uh, four minus their current albumin, multiply that by two point five, and add that to their calculated anion gap. So if they have an albumin of four, four minus four is zero. Nothing to add to the anion gap. If they have an albumin of two. 4 minus 2 is 2 times 2.5 is 5. Add that to their anion gap. That's a fine way to take care of it. The other thing that's like a favorite PIMP question is what causes a low anion gap? You'll come across a patient who's got an anion gap of 3, and every attending has the same story of the time they diagnose somebody with multiple myeloma from the low <laughs> anion gap, right? And and it's a great moment, right? Like, like they have they have used, they have converted a basic metabolic profile, totally routine lab, into a pretty advanced uh, diagnostic test. It's really, it is pretty cool. Um, the problem there is just thinking that it's only multiple myeloma that causes a low uh, anion gap. Decreased albumin and decreased phosphorus can cause a low anion gap. Hyperkalemia, hypercalcemia, hypermagnesemia, lithium um, can cause a decreased anion gap also. And so number of things, it's a larger differential than just the one great story that they have. I have a slide here in this deck, and it was a patient that I was taking care of in the hospital. And before my eyes, like over four or five days that I was taking care of, and their anion gap went negative, right? It started at six, and between a drop in their albumin and an increase in their potassium, they developed a negative anion gap, which was it's the only time I've ever seen that. Um, and uh, so I immediately went to the medical literature. I was like, oh, my God, what causes a negative anion gap? And it was a, um, it was the, the, the number one cause of a negative anion gap was the most disappointing thing ever, ever was lab error. <laughs> <laughs> I was just about to say that. I was like, that's not very satisfying. Um, but, uh, right. So, the, so this patient, uh, had been on high dose Bactrim for a resistant urinary tract infection, which caused the hyperkalemia and the urinary tract infection, urosepsis had caused uh, an acute drop in the albumin which is something I see more than I've seen documented about why people's albumin drops before your eyes, but happens in the hospital. Um, so, uh, yeah, that was, I thought that was pretty cool. Can you just briefly comment? Why does, why does hyperkalemia 
cause your ga- gap to drop and why does uh, w- why does the multiple myeloma patient have a gap that drops? Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. So when we do when we drew the gamble gram, we said that the sodium was the entire column of the cation column, which is not true. Sodium is you know ninety some odd percent of the cation column, but there is also unmeasured or uncounted cations. Right, and you can think of all the cations in blood. There's potassium, and there's calcium, and there's magnesium. Uh, lithium is a cation that's not normally in blood, but if you are on lithium, it'll be in blood. And um, IgG is cationic. And so if you have multiple myeloma with elevated IgG or Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia, you'll get a low anion gap. If you have IgA, which is anion, anionic, that'll cause an increased anion gap if you get increased IgG, IgA. IgA is anionic and... Yep. And IgG, IgG is cationic. Okay. And so an elevated IgG is going to cause a small, a low anion gap. An elevated IgA will cause a increased anion right. gap. And so the anion gap metabolic acidosis, those are, that's where the action is. That's the, you know, you know, every field, every field has that, has that uh, disease. That's like the go time, right? Like right. So for cardiology, it's acute MI, right? For, for nephrology, it's like the methanol toxicity, like, you know, alarm bells go off. We get super excited, right? Oh, you know, so, uh, and so you we have the differential for, um, for anion gap metabolic acidosis. And uh, what you guys were all taught, which ones were you guys? What was your, the uh, mnemonic that you guys were taught? Mud piles. Yeah, mud piles. Mud no, piles. Yeah, our producer, Javi, has one that's shorter. It's Colt, K-U-L-T, that he wanted me to bring up and see if you've heard of that one. Ketoacidosis, uremia, lactic acidosis, and T. Toxins. 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 Oh, Colt. Okay. I can get behind that. So, <laughs> and so when you, and so then my next question always is, so what did you have for the pee and mud piles? Peraldehyde. So yeah, yeah I was taught peraldehyde, right? And then, and what was the, what was the next thing you were taught about peraldehyde? I think that was Polyphenol. Tylenol, something, it had something to do with Tylenol, right? No, so peraldehyde, peraldehyde was a, a hypnotic sedative, like last used in 1972, <laughs> okay. right? Right. The current use of peraldehyde today is the pee in mud piles. Right? <laughs> <laughs> right? That's a noble place. Right. And I is INH and um, it is, uh, I, INH toxicity can cause a fulminant liver failure. And then once you have fulminant liver failure, you'll get, um, you can get lactic acidosis, nice. right? It's like six derivatives down. <laughs> does it take to get uh, 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 an anion get metabolic acidosis? Like they just needed an I, right? Um, and so uh, those are kind of the weaknesses in the mud piles acronym. And, and there've been some, uh, adjustments. People have tried to change the P and try to make it a little bit better. But um, uh, Michael Emmett, who is uh, who is chief, is chief of nephrology, might, he might even be chief of the chief of medicine now at um, uh, UT Southwestern, and a, just a, a giant in the field of metabolic acidosis. He uh, he had one of his fellows over for dinner, and his son, who was a medical student. And apparently, dinner conversation at the Emmett House was, how can we improve the mud piles <laughs> mnemonic? <laughs> and they created Goldmark, which is uh, 
what I think a, a lot of people are starting. A lot of people that teach this stuff are, start, are starting to use as a better mnemonic. So G stands for glycols. Um, O for oxoproline, which is the uh, uh, sepsis plus Tylenol equals big anion get metabolic acidosis. It's a pyroglutamic acidosis is the acid itself. Um, L is for L-lactic acidosis. D is for D-lactic acidosis. D-lactic acidosis is a crazy disease, right? Like when you learned about um, chirality, all biological molecules have the uh, levochiral um, uh, formation. So some bacteria produce a D-lactic acid, but the body can't handle D-lactic acid, and so it behaves bizarrely. So for one, normally uh, lactic acid is scavenged as a high-energy resource by the kidney. So L-lactate, when it gets filtered by the kidney, is reabsorbed by the proximal tubule, so your lactic acidosis is kind of self-perpetuating. But D-lactate, totally not recognized, and you just piss it out very quickly. And then the assays that we use for measuring lactic acidosis, literally it's a biological assay. Like you, we, we mix your blood with an enzyme and we look for the products. But the enzyme that we mix it for, with, lactic dehydrogenase, can't recognize D-lactic acid. So it's not detected by your normal hospital assays. You'll get zero lactic acidosis when, if they have D-lactic acidosis as the cause of their metabolic acidosis. And so and it causes confusion. So usually the clinical descriptions patients have waxing and waning altered mental status and waxing and waning high anion gap metabolic acidosis usually and it goes away because you piss it off and then it'll accumulate again later usually these patients will have uh, a blind loop so usually a RUNY or some other kind of uh, surgical uh, change to their gut and um, giving them uh, uh, simple sugars in their diet can feed these bacteria and cause this and you can just decontaminate them usually with uh uh, vancomycin or some other antibiotics to clear it out, but it's a it's a pretty cool pretty cool disease. Then uh, M for uh, in gold mark is methanol, A is aspirin, R is renal failure, and K is ketoacidosis. So gold mark, it's much cooler than mud piles. <laughs> Vince, I think you have a blog post. In fact, I know you do because I'm staring at it of potential alternate names that were considered before gold mark. Which are just delightful if you get a chance to oh, look yeah. at them. Okay. <laughs> so I think lame Sudoku is my favorite, but I think you were a fan <laughs> of smoking ale. From the anion get metabolic acidosis uh, and talking about uh, methanol and ethylene glycol, that leads to, leads to the fourth of five things that you do with an ABG. And this is looking at the um, osmolar gap. And uh, the hook here is... Two of these toxicities, you know, the uh, the T and cult, as as you guys are aware of, are um, a methanol and ethylene glycol toxicities, and uh, these toxins are unique in that they have a very low molecular weight, and so um, because they have a low molecular weight, an ingestible amount has a lot of osmols, right? Because so a few ounces, many osmols, because the molecular weight is low. And in fact, an ingestible amount has enough osmols to change the uh, meaningfully change the osmolality of the entire body. Right? You have 42 liters of water in a normal adult, and when you eat, when you take in a few ounces of methanol, it has enough osmols to change the osmo meaningfully change the osmos osmolality in the body. And this is important because this, these ingestions, methanol and ethylene glycol, are, are highly toxic. Um, and we don't have, most hospitals don't have a 
reliable and quick assay to get that. So at my hospital, somebody gets as presumed methanol toxicity or ethylene glycol toxicity. We draw a blood sample, we put it in a FedEx envelope and we send it to Utah, right? And maybe 36 hours later, you'll get an answer whether they have uh, <laughs> ethylene glycol toxicity or methanol toxicity. Um, and, but you, if you wait for the confirmation, if you wait for the biochemical confirmation, it'll be too late to treat this disease. You need to treat it very quickly. You need to put them on some, you got to shut down, uh, uh, um, alcohol dehydrogenase, either by getting them drunk or by, um, putting them on a drug called fomepazole, which is an alcohol dehydrogenase inhibitor, right? The unique thing about methanol and ethylene glycol is the parent compound, non-toxic. It is just the downstream metabolites. Uh, formic acid in the case of methanol and um, uh, oxalic acid in the case of ethylene glycol that are highly toxic. And so if you can stop the metabolism to these downstream metabolites, it's fine. And so the therapeutic strategy is block the metabolism with either uh, ethanol or ethylene glycol or fomepazole and then dialyze off the parent compound. Can you give an example of a patient, like a methanol toxicity patient that uh, that you saw at Cashlack, just like what this person looked like and like how you knew it was methanol? Right. So, uh, so the, these they they come in they come in two varieties. So uh, the uh, typical one is patient found down in a coma, <laughs> okay. brought in by the ER. You and they look. They look completely septic, but you know they're just they're hypotensive. They have a severe acidosis. They've got a huge anion gap. They're unable to tell you anything about their story, and you know so you're trying you're 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 starting from scratch. Um, and then the other ones are the suicides. So patients are trying to commit suicide by either t- drinking um, uh, antifreeze, which is ethylene glycol, or uh, methanol, uh, which uh, you'll find in um, uh, different kind of uh, fuels for uh, like uh, stoves. Okay. And, um, and you may be able to get a history out of them depending on how cooperative they're going to be or f- and how far gone they are by the time they get to the hospital. Okay. But they're, but the, you know, you, 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 it's the, and they're not, it's not the anion gap of 14. You're like, Oh, it's a positive anion gap. No, these people have an anion gap of 26 or 30. It's a huge anion gap. The, the interesting thing is anion gap comes from the downstream metabolites. The parent compounds are nonpolar, or they're not—they're not ions, right? They're, you know, they're—they're they're neutral compounds, so they don't produce any type of anion gap. So early on, they'll have this big osmolar gap, which we'll talk about shortly, and that as the parent compound is metabolized, the osmolar gap gets smaller and smaller, and the anion gap get gap gets larger and larger, and so they can, they actually can trade places. But all the ones that I've seen have always had a pretty huge anion gap. And then and also a pretty big osmolar gap when we measured it. And then you, you dialyze these patients to, to treat them? First thing you need to do is you need to give them, make sure they have an alcohol level over 100 or you put them on fomepazole. If they have an alcohol level over 100 uh, milligrams per, I want to say, yeah, 100 milligrams per deciliter, that effectively shuts down, uh, they get no metabolism by alcohol dehydrogenase. And that temporizes the situation, allows you to have, you can take your time about getting dialysis access, get a dialysis nurse in there and dialyze them. If they don't have a high alcohol level on board, then you need to give them a dose of fomepazole, which is a specific alcohol dehydrogenase inhibitor. Okay. And and just uh, to mention it, since we're on the topic, isopropyl alcohol, how does that, how does that case differ clinically? 
And uh, Javi, Javi had a great case that I just wanted to mention uh, after you, you tell us about that. Right. So isopropyl alcohol will cause uh, intoxication. Patient will be intoxicated. They will get a large osmolar gap, which we'll talk about shortly, but they don't get an anion gap and they don't get metabolic acidosis. So Javi was telling me about, uh, our producer was telling me about a patient that they, that came in basically inebriated. They couldn't really take the history and the labs were subject, suggestive that this might have been isopropyl alcohol. And he actually found in the guy's coat pocket, it was called Rush. And it was a it was a some sort of nail polish remover with acetone and isopropyl alcohol. But they, it, the brand name is called Rush. And the guy told them when he woke up that he was snorting it. So I just wanted to <laughs> – I was like, Javi, that's amazing. I, I had to let him know that uh, the audience know that that's out there. <laughs> People are doing Rush apparently. Matt, I, I was just going to tell you, uh, as you mentioned, actually, some of the patients that come in into the ED are usually intoxicated – and you are not even able to get any history out of all things. Um, so this this patient that we had actually ended up having elevated ketones. And at that point, we get with normal gap and ended up having an elevator, a smaller gap. So that kind of like took us to the level that it could be isopropyl alcohol. And it was one of those amazing cases where you ended up going to the jacket, pulling out actually a nail polish remover and in the back it actually said acetate and isopropyl alcohol so it is something to always keep in mind and consider so calculating the osmolar gap is kind of a hassle because uh the american units come back to bite us we need to convert and what we do is we calculate an osmolality and that calculation will include everything except for these toxic alcohols and then we measure the osmolality in the body, which will include those toxic alcohols. And if there's a big difference between a calculated osmolality and the measured osmolality, that's an osmolar gap. And that's presumptive evidence for these low molecular weight toxins. Again, it's not great. There's a lot of false positives. But the key here is you need to be able to calculate the osmolality. And um, we double the sodium. So the sodium, if for every cation, there has to be an anion. We don't care what the anion is. We just know that if we double the sodium, we'll cover for it. Then we take the BUN divided by 2.8, the glucose divided by 18, and the ethanol and you divide it by 3.7. You add those all together and that's your calculated osmolality. All the medical calculators will do this. Um, the weird one, the, the divisors there are one-tenth of the molecular weight. So the molecular weight of nitrogen is 28, so you divide it by 2.8. Molecular weight of glucose is 180, you divide it by 18. The molecular weight of ethanol is 46, and so we should divide it by 4.6. And if you have an old calculator, it will, but there was some empiric data that was done recently and shows that alcohol does not act like an ideal solvent in the body, strangely enough. And so the correct divisor is 3.7. I don't quite understand why, but that's what you should be dividing it by. Okay. And that'll give you your calculated osmolality. And if your gap is more than 10, it's considered positive. But um, the specificity for toxic alcohol really starts to rise as that osmolar gap goes above 20. That You'll get a lot of false positives between, between 10 and 20. So in addition to our true positives, which are ethyl, ethylene glycol and methanol, Isopropyl alcohol will also cause an elevated osmolar gap. Ketoacidosis and lactic acidosis can cause one. 
uh, mannitol infusions, hypertriglyceridemia, and pseudohyponatremia can also cause osmolar gaps. So there's a number, this is not the most specific test, but you're not using this in all patients. You're really using it in very specific patients that have bad metabolic acidosis and a big anion gap, and that should narrow it down. Yeah. And and all three of the alcohols can cause inebriation and uh, hypotension if it's a severe ingestion, correct? So you, you would be looking for those things too, which hypertriglyceridemia, to my knowledge, is not going to cause altered mental status and hypotension. So <laughs> Yeah, uh, that, that's right. The last core lesson for ABGs is what I call the bicarbonate before, but is commonly referred to as the gap-gap calculation. And this is another way to find an additional acid-based disorder tucked away, hidden in the ABG, okay? And so you only can do this if, well, not only, but generally you'll do this if they have a uh, anion gap metabolic acidosis. And if you remember, we said if they that we went back to the gamblegrams, we said anions equal cations, and we said the bicarb goes down, and the if you have an anion gap, the other anions rose up to replace the bicarb. And if you look at the gamblegram, you're like, you know, not only is the bicarb going down and the other anions are going up, but that's going to be at a one-to-one ratio, right? In order for it to remain the same as a sodium, for every one that the bicarb falls, the other anions need to go up by one. So what that essentially means is that the change in bicarb equals the change in anion gap, right? For every one that the bicarb falls, the anion gap goes up by one. So the delta bicarb equals the delta anion gap. So we can just use algebra then to solve for the bicarb before. So the bicarb before, and what that literally means, that means the bicarb before they develop the anion gap, right? So this is like, you know, we're, we got like an acid-based time machine. We're like, we're going to go back before there was an anion gap. Yeah. It's going to equal the current bicarb plus the current anion gap minus the normal anion gap of 12, mm-hmm. right? So if you have a person with a, um, a bicarb of uh, 8 and an anion gap of 14, we take 8 plus 14 minus 12, which is 2, so that's 10. So they have an anion gap metabolic acidosis, but if you remove that anion gap metabolic acidosis, that bicarb was 10. So before they had the anion gap metabolic acidosis, they already had a severe metabolic acidosis that dropped their bicarb from 24 to 10. That's what that's all we're doing there. It's, and I, I call it the bicarbonate before. It's generally called the gap-gap, which is a totally different calculation than what I did. I think the gap-gap calculation is obscures what you're actually calculating. I don't think it's as good as what I've just talked about. Um, the slide deck walks through all the math ma- mathematics and has a couple of example questions um, to show how this works. My, I, my guess my question is like clinically, why does that step matter? Because it's, it's a, it, okay. I can't say it's something I'm doing on a regular basis, but. Okay, let's walk through. Here, here's, a, here's, a, here's a great example. We're going to use the exact same number that we just did before. So we said that the guy had a bicarb of 8 and had an anion gap of 14. And I'm also going to tell you that the, you dipped their urine and they were positive for ketones and the glucose was 460. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you have a diagnosis, right? This patient has DKA. You do the gap-gap calculation and you find that their bicarb bef- without the anion gap was 10, Right. 
We already did that math, right? And so this guy, the DKA brought their bicarb all the way from 10 to 8. Mm-hmm. In fact, the patient has the world's most mild case of DKA, <laughs> right? All you need to do, you take the insulin bottle, you pop off the top, you waft it under this guy's nose, and that's going to be enough insulin to reverse his ketosis, right? Okay. I mean, the guy, he's got essentially none. But he's then mm-hmm. going to be left with this horrible non-anion get metabolic acidosis. I don't know. Maybe he's got cholera. He's just pooping himself to death, <laughs> right? And and we tell people, you do not treat DKA with bicarb. We have multiple placebo-controlled, randomized controlled trials showing that bicarb in DKA is bad, right? It perpetuates ketosis. It increases electrolyte abnormalities. It's a no-no. But in this case, his DKA is almost incidental to his primary disease, right? If you just do the surface calculation, you have an anion-gap metabolic acidosis with ketones and a glucose and a type 1 diabetic. It's a perfect fit, but this guy does need bicarb because his, his DKA is mild and not that important. The real problem here is his severe non-anion gap metabolic acidosis, and if it's due to diarrhea, you're going to need to replace replace that bicarb. And so th- this is a situation that uncovering what's below that anion gap metabolic acidosis totally changes your management. How did you know from – I might be missing this. How did That's you right. know from – from that equation, you calculate the bicarb so you can tell if the, what, it, that the bicarb was low before. How do you know it's a non-gap acidosis versus a, a anion gap acidosis? Because the, the gap acidosis is, is – the whole point of the, uh, the bicarb before backs out, removes the anion gap metabolic acidosis from the equation and sees what's left behind it. Okay. That's what you're doing. So you're, if you remove the anion gap – well, then, you know, and I don't know if it's all DKA. You could, it, it also removes a lactic. You could have DKA plus lactic acidosis plus, you know, uh, oxaproline, uh, you know, okay. acidosis. All of those anion gaps are removed, and all that's left for a decreased bicarb is a non anion gap metabolic acidosis. Okay. Right. And, and sometimes you'll do this calculation and you'll find out that the bicarb before was 32. Oh my God, they had this wicked metabolic alkalosis before they developed their anion gap metabolic acidosis. Right. So you, things are revealed that can help you understand the natural history of the disease that you're dealing with. Got it. All okay. right. Excellent. So you, you mentioned during that there, you mentioned, you know, sodium, sodium bicarb for, for DKA. Can you just talk about, I mean, I see a lot of non-gap acidosis from sodium chloride. Can you just comment on LR versus sodium chloride versus bicarb drip where we're trying to resuscitate patients or, or give them IV fluids, which, which choice you use? Yeah. So, um, there is a raging debate in critical care about uh, which crystalloid solution is better, uh, saline or lactated ringers or ba- what they call balanced solutions. Yeah, and, right. I, and when I say they, I mean me. Like that's just the terminology. <laughs> so is it saline or balanced solutions? Talking about like plasma light and things like that? Plasma light is one. Uh, um, and Hartman solution is another mm-hmm. one. There's a, there's a number of these. Um, and uh, the biggest published study is called the split trial and it showed no difference between these um and there was a study presented in abstract form only and rumor has it this month it'll be published we'll see if that really happens and that showed a survival benefit from using balanced solutions i haven't all i've been all i've done is i've seen the abstract so i 
I don't, you know, I can't comment on how good a study that is, but that, you know, survival benefits are pretty important. We tend to change change everything we do if there's a real survival benefit. Yeah. So, I mean, if it, if it pans out, that you're you're going to see that. But we definitely know that the um, that giving patients normal saline generates a non-anion gap metabolic acidosis, and um, it's not hard to believe that that's not ideal for taking care of patients is to give them metabolic acidosis. And if you give them these balanced solutions, they don't develop that. Is there any, and what, what situations are you reaching for a bicarb drip? I, I like to treat most of, uh, you know, if they are losing bicarb from uh, diarrhea or from a surgical drain, I like to replace that bicarb. Um, if they have a renal tubular acidosis, you're going to need to replace that bicarb. There are some patients with uh, severe, uh, they have compromised respiration and they have a bad metabolic acidosis and they're just not going to be able to breathe fast enough to compensate for that metabolic acidosis. You can help them out by giving them some bicarb. And the biggest error I see with uh, bicarb drips is they, um, is they mix it with normal saline and you should never add bicarb to normal saline. Like the, you start, you can add bicarb to D5W. You can add three or four amps of bicarb to D5W and you get something close to isotonic. Four amps will be slightly hypertonic. Three amps will be slightly hypotonic. You can add one or two amps to half normal saline, but never add bicarb to normal saline. Just don't do that. Okay. Yes. You know, we were mentioning how, um, you know, bicarb, just a d- bad idea in DKA a little while ago. You know, up to date, the algorithm that everyone follows for DKA management says if pH is less than 6.9, um, you know, do bicarb in the in the solutions that they're getting. Would you agree with that or just yeah, it's going to so, increase the ketones, leave it alone? Yeah, I mean, I think. Uh, I will admit that I've not looked at a lot of the literature of the sub pH seven, uh, sub seven pH. Yeah. Like I think you're you're deep you're deep into mechanistic me- medicine, just trying to take a look at it. And we have good data that shows uh, that our inotropes stop working at those low pHs, that the heart stops working that effectively. We know the proteins start to denature down that down that that level, and enzymes don't work as well. So it's not surprising that. Uh, you're going to want to just focus and that's a situation where you'll just want to focus on the pH. Okay. But, I, but, you know, but, I, you know, again, you know, I would, to really know the answer, you'd have to look at the data and my guess, I've never seen a positive bicarb study, right? Like I've just never seen data that shows that improving the pH with bicarb really improves patient outcomes. And I think you probably, that they're probably relying on mechanistic medicine. And you'll usually see this usually not 6.9, but below sub 7.1, mm-hmm. people start to get pretty uncomfortable and want you to yeah. raise the, raise the pH. But, uh, there oh, it is. There it is. There's our there's our clock. So I think that's a good I think that's a good uh time to end this episode. <laughs> I I think we probably should do uh RTAs on a future episode. I think that's something was, something else that people yep. misunderstand and that uh we certainly don't have time to tonight to go through. Right. So if you, the thing the, the if you look at kind of what we went through, we did not go over any of the non-anion get metabolic acidosis, and that's RTAs, and that's a, and the reason we didn't do it, that's an hour on its own. Yeah. But right. yeah, I'd, I'd love to come back and do that sometime. Anything you'd like to plug before we let you go? 
If you have not filled out your brackets for Neff Madness, I don't know what you're waiting for. This is the biggest deal in nephrology social media, right? This is this is this is a one type of uh, encounter. We have free CME. We've got prizes. We've got lots of humor. There's memes. It should be a blast. Check out nephmadness.com. This is awesome. I uh, I'm gonna put in a bracket this year. This is this will be my first Neff Madness. And uh, we're going to try to get a Curbsiders team in there. Isn't that right, uh, Curbsiders? Yay. <laughs> <laughs> it's 11 p.m. <laughs> All right, Joel. Thank you so much. You guys take care. Thanks a lot. Thanks, right. This is great. Take care. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Stuart Yummy. Ken Brigham's mic is... Oh, thank you, Shreya. <laughs> I was going to explain that Stuart's on mute right now, and I imagine this might be one of the best times of Paul's life. <laughs> I, the best outro ever. <laughs> <laughs> you can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. And sign up for our weekly mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get a PDF copy of our weekly show notes, which will feature Dr. Toff's wonderful uh, PowerPoint slides. Also, we're committed to providing you with high-value practice-changing knowledge, so please send us an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. You can recommend a future topic or tell us what you love or hate about the show. And please follow us on Twitter at thecurbsiders.com. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto, at Dr. Watto on Twitter. Javi, are you still with us? All right, and I'm Javi Jimenez, and peace out. Test, test, test. Oh, there you are, Stuart. <laughs> how, how long have I, been, have I been muted? This is ridiculous. Until just this second. How about you, uh, Sam? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I'm just disgusted. This is Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. <laughs> and this is Dr. Shreya Trivedi. And this is Paul Williams. I can be found at uh, Brigham SK on Twitter. <laughs> and, and do not follow doc, do not follow Dr. Williams on Twitter. There was there was a switch that says silent. I figured that was where I should put it. Apparently not. <laughs> this is excellent. And they say to this very day, you can still hear the clock ringing. <laughs> <laughs>